Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Ono Sullivan and today's guest on the show is Joe Kelly, who anybody involved in music in Cork probably knows him. A lot of people outside of Cork probably knows him as well. He's been around since the days of Sir Henry's back in the late 80s, putting on gigs throughout the years. He was involved in the Bodega in Cork. He was involved in the Roundy in Cork. He's probably been involved in like everything music related in Cork, the pavilion as well. And he's currently kind of operating in uh, St. Luke's, live at St. Luke's Church on the on the north side. I ventured up to the north side for this interview. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you'll be able to tell it in my voice or in our voices that I'm on the north side, but just, just so you know that that's what happened. But what we're talking about today is it takes a village a new festival from joe kelly and ed o'leary both of the good room promotions it's taking place april 13th to 15th in trabalgan in east cork it's about like half an hour outside of cork or something like that i think uh it's the first festival uh or it's the first it takes a village and oh boy what a lineup young fathers andrew weatherall martin hayes and steve cooney Talos, Fish Go Deep, Fujiya and Miyagi, Brian Didi, Lancome, The Altered Hours, Blind Boy's going to be there with his podcast. If you haven't heard the Kevin Barry episode of the Blind Boy podcast, oh man, it's unreal. It's brilliant. They go like in depth on, on writing tips and like just the life of a writer. And why would anybody want to be a writer? <laughs> uh, Shit Robot, Bitch Falcon, Nile or Nine, Donald Deneen, Opep, The Jimmy Cake. Could I go on? I could go on because the point of everything is going to be at It Takes a Village as well. Uh, I'll be doing an interview possibly on the Sunday morning uh, or relatively early on the Sunday of It Takes a Village. Also, there are St. Keelan, Stephen James Smith, Lords of Strut, Landless, Damsel and Yankee, Ashu, the DJ, Elaine Malone. And there's going to be lots of food. Lots of art, lots of art. There's going to be five-a-side football. There's going to be a golf scramble. Uh, there's going to be go-cars, maybe? Who knows? Uh, I'm really excited. Uh, I put on Crosstown Drift with Joe Kelly last summer. And, you know, it's kind of like just doing something different. Like taking the idea of a book festival and kind of changing what it is you actually get out of it. Instead of just... Inter straight up interviews or something with authors or readings with authors in these stayed tired old rooms you go out on the street and you like bring it to the people almost and it takes a village is looking to do something a little bit different with the idea of a music festival it's a self-catering festival so it's kind of like atp i suppose you get these these houses the chestnut house the alpine house which is sold out hazel house uh, lots of different houses and you can sleep up to eight people, nine people to a house. You kind of go in and book it together. Um, all of the details are there on ittakesavillage.fm or uticket.ie as well. If you search for that, you'll get the uh, all of the accommodation prices. Um, yeah, there's 172 houses, 35 camper van sites. It's taking place on a 121-acre site on, at Trabulgan. There's more than 70 acts across three stages. 
There's a swimming pool, a water slide, a wave maker. Yeah, there is go-karts. There's an arcade. Bowling. Secret stuff, plus way more, says the website. So yeah, I think it's going to be really, really good. I expect nothing less from Joe. Uh, he's a great music curator as well with all of the festivals that he's put on. Take note of that line. You'll need it for later on in the podcast. So yeah, Joe knows a lot about music. So without further ado, here is Joe Kelly on The Point of Everything. So Joe, I mean, where, where do you start with It Takes a Village? Like, do you talk about Trebulgan first, the lineup? What do you want to go with first? I mean, when did you go to Trebulgan when you were younger? No, well, never. Really? Have you ever been there as like a, a Trebulgan fun fair? Vertically challenged person? No. Uh, when I was smaller, no. Weirdly, I didn't because I'm from Galway, so it's not somewhere that we just wouldn't have kind of ventured that. Now, not to say that we were off in Europe or anything. We used to go out to Connemara because my parents were mad into the Gaelga and. Uh, from 1978, we had a little tiny place out in the arse end of Connemara and Lethermore. Um, so we used to go there every year, and that was where they were into hanging. But, no, Trebolgan, um no, I was always aware of it. You know, once you became aware of it, it was one of those things where I said, obviously, when I got to Cork in 88, I wouldn't have thought of it for a while, but I'd say in the mid-90s, I like I think someone reminded me that it was maybe 20 years ago I started talking about it. And then maybe 15 years ago, I approached them and, you know, I had the best intentions of doing something. But at the time we were, I can't remember what I was doing. Actually, I was uh, <laughs> in the middle of, uh, uh, of uh, a period of do not doing a lot, weirdly. But anyway, there was a court case going on. But um, so, uh, so from that point forward, I suppose, really... Um, uh, it was something we always, I always wanted to do. I always thought, you know, the fact that you've got, you know, 172 houses, 35 caravan pitches, the fact that you've, you, like, what is a village? So almost that's where the name comes from. It takes a village, you know, to raise a child. Well, it takes a village to dot, dot, dot. That's almost what we're saying. So I suppose what we're thinking about is that the overall soundtrack is music, but ultimately, you know, you're going to be living in a house or even if you're a camper van site, you're going to be next door to somebody. And the point is, you know, we hope that people will um, have a great neighborly experience for the first, you know, for the three days they're there, the three nights, and um, come away with having made new friends and have, have had a great experience from an entertainment point of view. So is, is like what the lineup on from April 13th to 15th, is that what you kind of had envisioned envisaged like 15 years ago that it would kind of be this kind of festival experience like all of these different acts or was it something different that you might that you would have had in mind like i, I think i started the 21st century let's start yeah i think um no interestingly probably it would have been a different concept which would have been for example in 97 98 99 Myself and my partner at the time, Dennis, ran a festival called uh, the Southern Soul and Disco Festival. So in year one, you know, we had we had the Opera House and 10 pubs. So in year one, we had Basement Jacks. Now, Basement Jacks were not big at the time, as in they had their label Atlantic Jacks and they were starting to brew. And as an underground act, they were, you know, at the pinnacle. I mean, ironically, their Atlantic Jack days of their own stuff was quite more interesting than... 
uh, you know, the later stuff. Even though the later stuff, they got it. I mean, I remember them playing on the Opera House stage with Karina Joseph, who was the singer, who's brilliant. Um, and uh, what you call it, I think they realized then, oh, if you're on a big stage, you got to have something going on. And I'm not saying from that gig. I'm sure it happened to them a few times. So that's why you got the Brazilian kind of jump around the place and party. And as well, they kind of got that in that that's what you do. But anyway, the Southern Soul, we had loads of interesting people over the years, like, you know, Jungle Brothers, uh, Ray and Christian, Rose Royce singer, uh, Gwen Dickey. We had Jocelyn Brown. We had, um, you know, DJ Harvey. We had Phase Action. Um, DJ Harvey is a brilliant name. <laughs> DJ Harvey is, it's funny. You know, DJ Harvey is a funny one because now to the kids, like DJ Harvey's a massive DJ. I'm not just saying to the kids, but internationally. But anyway, we had him, I'm pretty sure, at that. And uh, what you call it, in more disco, this disco club we used to run in the mid-90s in Zoe's, which is now, what's it called now? Um Scots, the Oliver Plunkett. So it was the upstairs of that. It was a total different building. I mean, it's been demolished, but the same site. But we did disco night. So this DJ Harvey, anyway, was in English terms, he was like the best DJ going. And he was. He was superb. Maybe a bit deep for Cork on a Tuesday night. But it was brilliant, you know, new disco, as they were starting to call it. But the interesting thing was, anyway... He got into surfing, gave up DJing, and disappeared to Hawaii. And because he didn't have the right papers, he couldn't get out of Hawaii for 10 years. So his legend grew. And I think he came back about five years ago, and he's like huge money to get now because it's like the legendary DJ Harvey. So for any budding DJs, that's the lesson. You know, do nothing for 10 years <laughs> and do the, stuck the, in Hawaii. Do the Westlife comeback slash DJ Harvey, and uh, that's where the money is. This was like the end of the 90s, was it? That well, he yeah, the Southern on. Soul was 97, 98, 99. So it was a good period. I mean, I suppose that, you know, I would have been involved in opening a bar on the Cold K in 96 called the Bodega. Now, there was nothing there. I mean, it's funny that when you tell people about, there was no lights on in the Cold K at nighttime, and you would get hopped going down there. It was more or less guaranteed. Are you getting trouble? So people used to go down North Main Street. So the Cold K was almost like... I don't know, one of those kind of areas down by the bus station or, you know, just kind of slightly forgotten about. And I mean, I remember at the time people said to us, we're mad, like, but we were like, but where the bodega is now, it's like, but it's, you know, 80 meters from Patrick Street. But even the roundy at the time was really dodgy. It was like the last bastion of the Apache kind of raiders from the north side. You know, it was a dangerous enough pub. And um, so, you know, that, that, yeah, so it was an interesting time in Cork and in Ireland that, you know, in Dublin, there was lots of interesting things going on in bars and clubs. And I suppose even internationally, um, we as a nation, I think, had embraced the fact that, you know, and this was the point architecturally with the Bodega at the time was that, you know, people have traveled, seen the world. Why can't we have amazing bars like warehouse bars like you'd find in New York? So, you know, so in Cork, we, we were doing that. And so there was a real confidence around, you know. But um, but in saying that, I came here in 88 and there was no money. It was gritty. It was bleak. And it was amazing at the same time, you know, mm. so... But when you talk about putting on DJ Harvey and Zoe's, was it? Uh, Zoe's like on a time. Tuesday and a like Tuesday. being like it was it was too deep house for Cork. I was like, but wasn't uh, Sir Henry's around back then? I thought that that was like pure 
deep house. No, I'm not saying deep house, actually. I was saying deep disco. What I mean is that, like, no, the Henry's, like, Henry's was 88 to whenever, you know, certain people say it had run a little out of steam in the mid to late 90s. We realized that, you know, we were getting, when we started in 2000, no, sorry, 96, we started more disco and we did it for about four or five years. Now we do the city hall on Stevens night. You get a thousand people. We were getting 400, 450 people every Tuesday after a year and a half. Now it sounds bizarre now. I mean, the whole concept of, and I don't mean clubbing that. Yeah, we're all there and we're all going out clubbing. It was just that there was no late bars. So if you wanted to go out after 11 o'clock, you went to clubs. So it wasn't like kind of, club kids and all this kind of malarkey but the truth of it was it was a really interesting time in cork in that you know fords and dunlops had fallen in 83 and like so there was a gritty post-industrial thing and you see it in none attacks you see it in you know lots of the music that was coming out you know micro disney even the i suppose the anger of cahill in a way towards you know, the city and so many things about Cork you could dislike, but from that fed this very positive energy. And, you know, I still say that is energy is is there at the moment, but it's a little twisted, but there you go. In in what way? Like that there's no kind of set direction or no set um place for these people to gather together? Yeah, I think it's very important. I think, you know, the bottom line is I think it's difficult because I suppose entertainment goes through phases. You know what I mean? For example, a period that fascinates me is the show band era. And it fascinates me because you kind of go, literally, that's all that was going on. There was show bands. The best musicians in the country played in the best bands and they made the best money. And these people were making soccer player wages back then. The really good ones. And then there was levels down. Not everyone plays for Man United. I mean, you're going to have the guy playing for the relative band that is you know, League of Ireland band as well. But, you know, you look at that period and there's ebbs and flows and it hits the early 70s and the 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 kind of, uh, with the evolution of discos, you know, basically there's a split and the split is country and Irish, which is now Big Tom, Daniel O'Donnell, all that kind of stuff. And then people like Van Morrison, Rory Gallagher, the Platter Men. I mean, I have this album by The Platter Men. It's 1972. It's called Old Devil Wine. If, if you know, you're listening to this and uh, what you call it, check it out on YouTube. So The Platter Men. And there's a song like African Wawa. There's another one, Jesus A Go-Go or something. But these, this is 1972 and you're listening to it going, well, what is this? Because funk technically hadn't been invented. But it's definitely kind of R&B slash rock slash blues somewhere in the middle. But it's one of those albums that, you know, we were taking contemporary influences, but we're kind of doing it in an Irish way, you know, so. Um, Tell me about when you first met Stevie G. I've never heard this story of like, is is there a story behind it? Like meeting Stevie for the first time, like in the back bar of Henry's or something romantic like that? Oh, no. Well, actually, uh, it's funny. I was filling out some other interview thing today and I mentioned this, that like, so it was kind of very interesting time. So I got here in 1988 and I remember the first night staying in St. Luke's and walking down to the hill and it was like pathetic fallacy. It's one of the only things I remember from English, but where nature sympathizes with human emotion. So anyway, there was a a fog, a fog sitting on the city and it was like, wow, this is fascinating. And you're walking into the belly of the beast. But I think that night I went to the Shield Brin maybe at the time, um, 
I think possibly Dennis had it, um, or maybe the Cork Arms went to next door or something as well. And then, like, Isaac Bells was really interesting at the time. There was, like, Donkey Man was playing there, DJ Fork, uh, a few other people, which Isaac Bells is down on the keys, you know, unfortunately it's gone as a bar. And then this girl, Michelle Ring, came back from England, and her parents bought this bar in Union Key. So what you know as Union Key now, you'd go... There was five bars there at the time in a row. I think there's two left, you know, as bar bars. So what is Taste or is it Union Grind? That was the donkey's ears. Next to it was uh, uh, the Phoenix, which is still there, then Charlie's. Then Latitude was obviously the lobby, but it was actually Henry Africa's before that. And around the corner, which is like a shop, that was the Chambers. So there was five bars. But anyway, Michelle's parents bought the donkeys and she ran it. And like, so from this tiny, I mean, you go in there now, Union Grind, and you go, I can't believe that you'd have 100, 120 people in there, but you did. And like, they had decks built inside the door. So, I mean, people didn't even have Technics then. It was Citronic belt driven, you know, it was a single unit. And just through that bar and people that were into music and Michelle's good taste, um, uh, that built up a kind of community thing. And then from that, because... Uh, the manager of Henry's was Sean O'Neill and Sean ended up going out with Michelle and they're still married now um, but um, they live on the south side but uh, they, what you call it so the two of them, so between them not that they conspired but you know, the because of Michelle's taste and into London she had lived in London so she was into like reggae and hip hop and you know, she was quite influenced in a good way, she'd gone to you know, Soul to Souls nights in Brixton. She'd gone, she'd done all those things. So she knew, and her brother Donkey Man was a great DJ as well, and Fork and, you know, Liam and Kevin, and there was all these people. So it was a brilliant kind of feeder ground, and that fed into Henry's back bar and the front. So I would have started DJing there, even though I rented out Henry's, I think, in February 89, doing this night called Blah Blah Go Go Club. It's called that was our our first night the blah blah go go club, so I think we got something like two hundred and thirty people in, and I don't know it was probably three quid or something in something like this, and I realized Jesus you can make money out of this you know what I mean, and you know now that's easy because you get a rent crowd on gig number one gig number two the rent crowd were starting if, to dissipate if I knew then what I knew now <laughs> yeah well of course but by gig three the reality is you kind of realize that okay if you're in this for the real deal you know if you're you know going to do it long term well you kind of can't depend on rent a crowd you know because generally they don't pay in either you know and so where was Stevie in all this Stevie was a young fella at the time. He had um, a mad kind of uh, brilliant flat top haircut. And uh, I remember he was a big Man United fan. And, uh, well, he still is. Now he's and a Man United troll, though. Well, nah, <laughs> he's, he's trolling not. all the time on Twitter. Like. Nah, he's not. I think, uh, no, he's he's solid. You know, he's probably a little upset. Um, I'm sure, like, I don't know, is Mourinho the right thing for them? But anyway, this is not a football podcast, but that's another story. Um, no, Stevie was... Basically, it was funny. There was a friend of mine. A friend of mine uh, was working, Mushy, who still does stuff for us. Mushy was working in a design company called Epic. And Epic, 
Ron Rigby would have had an Apple Macintosh. I shit you not. This is like 1990 or something. So this was like, wow, an Apple Macintosh. Even though, what can we do with it? Yeah, but even though Apple had come to Cork and I think 89 or were out in what is known as Hewitt's Warehouse out in Blackpool. That's where they actually started. There's still stickers on the wall from when they were there. But um, so like a Macintosh and you had a design program, you know, because up until that point, when I started doing gigs, you'd basically pick a picture, we'll say from our, you know, if you were really artistic, you'd make something. But so what we do is pick a picture or draw something or whatever. You'd photocopy it. You'd go to Eason's and buy Letraset. And Letraset is these letters you rub out, right? So basically you'd cut out a picture make it on an A4, and then get rub-out letters, you know, Sir Henry's, you know, Wednesday, you know, 10 p.m., three or three pounds, it was pounds back then, and uh, that's how you made your flyers. Then, because I was in UCC, you'd go to the, the library, and you'd photocopy it four times, and then make that into four flyers, and yada, yada, yada. And that's the way you did it, and it was real basic. So, when someone had a computer, and that was the start of even design, that was like mad. And that's why even with the Henry's Weekenders, that it was John McMonagall designed them, that you look at the first one, the flower, and the second, the baby, and the third, can't remember what the third one, well, is it the third or the fourth is the kind of Halloween one? I think it's a Martin Healy photograph. But, um, you know, that was the first time that people were actually starting to use colour design in the city. So when myself and Dennis in the mid-90s started doing stuff, we decided we were going to do get really good design. And we used John Bite for 20 years. He did literally everything we ever did for 10, 15 years was John Bite. I mean, he's an excellent designer. Um, he's more based in theatre and uh, the arts now. But um, So I look back on all the stuff that, you know, John McMonagall did with Henry's and John Bite did with us. And it's a really interesting time design-wise, you know, in, in Cork because you really were going from desktop publishing, as they called it, black and white. You know, you even look at the fanzines and, you know, you kind of think, oh, aren't they cutesy? That kind of ransom note kind of stuck together. And literally all they were doing is typing it out on a typewriter, getting print stick and sticking it on a piece of paper. Uh, you know, and that's why the stories look so sometimes disjointed in that that's the way it was done. And those sheets were photocopied and that's what fanzines, etc., etc., were. Um, and just bring it up, like, bring it back to it takes a village, I suppose. Like, who did the uh, who did the poster for this? <laughs> Well, we, um, basically it's Robin Foley, who's hurrah, hurrah, based in on Patrick's Key there. And then the artwork, even though, unfortunately, because we have so many acts, we haven't uh, allowed that to take its place where it should. But we will over the next few weeks is um, Pather Lamb, who's a stained glass artist. And he's actually down on the lower road as well. So... Both of those guys combined, but so the design is hurrah, hurrah. So uh, you'd know them from around Cork, or they used to be in the window of Russell's bookshop, uh, those kind of prints of Cork, like the Glucksman and uh, English Market and all those ones. Is it important to have the right aesthetic for, like, the festival or the gig that you're putting on? Like, you know, you do have to kind of think about everything, like what will suit this idea that we have for It Takes Village. I, I do, actually, yeah. I mean, personally, I always think it's about your aesthetic. Now, in saying that, for example, you know, 
I remember the, the first hurdle, it wasn't like it was a hurdle, but it was kind of for John Bight, weirdly at the time, was to realise, because he was doing theatre stuff. And so, not to say that they were precious, but, you know, it's a poster and it goes up and it's beautiful and all that kind of stuff. And once you started doing flyers, you realised the disposability. Now, it was terrible in that, you know, you'd print them on beautiful paper, you know, City Print would do the flyers or... Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, they could end up in a bin, but it was a way of communicating then, because think of it, you're only just mobile phones were only getting going. There was no, you know, Facebook, Twitter, none of those. So literally flyers and posters were how you communicated with people. I mean, it wasn't even, oh, you know, like now I'll see you in such and such. It's like you knew that if you were walking around town and Johnny wasn't in pub A, he might be in B, C or D, but that was it. And, you know, that's how you'd find people. Yeah, but I, I guess like with, like there's so many festivals now in like 2018 and there have, it's just been like probably, an, I presume, an increasing number in Ireland, you know, in the past five or six years. And yet really it is kind of just names on a sheet. You know, it's kind of like the bare bones information, but it is, like something like this, I think is a really great poster. Like it does help it stand out, even like the little bird logo oh, and you. stuff. And I think standing out is kind of the thing that like everybody wants to do. And I think that it is something that you're doing really, I suppose, just in the idea of like the accommodation idea and everything. Well, I suppose, you know, being, being honest with you, I mean, there was two holiday villages in Ireland. So you've got Butlins or Mosney, which is now a direct provision center. So, you know, there's a lot of um, people living there and hopefully they're enjoying the facilities and I'm sure it's kind of cool place. But so Trabalgan's the only acting one which is open. Um, you know, there's talk of one being built or it's being built up in Longford. But um, so Oh, yeah, the forest, forest something or other, Central isn't it? Parks or Central, Central Park, Park something yeah. like that. Yeah. But so I suppose the thing about Trabalgan and, uh, is that, you know, as I say to people, it's... Unfortunately, you know, there was 3,000 great houses in Ireland, right? Okay, that's a sign of colonialism, yada, yada, yada. But still, architecturally, it's a pity that more than 2,200 of them have been demolished or gone. And Trabalgan, when you look at it, it was the old family seat of the Roaches, you know, and the Roaches of Roaches Point fame. And as I do say, it's like they don't build houses in crappy locations so like it's now it's on 121 acres i can only imagine back in the day they would have had tens of thousands i'm sure but um even though they were kind of of irish stock you know but um so the location's amazing i mean it's there's a river running through a stream should i say running through it. it's on a valley and when you get to the end of the um the uh, site where the um, old house was. There's a swimming pool which stares out next stop France and you're on the coast. And, you know, there's a golf, a three-part three golf course there. And, like, it really is a beautiful location. You know, I suppose it's funny going back to the design thing. It's all about perception. So if I give you a teddy, teddy bear and kind of, you know, bright, yeah, bright colours, right? That's what Trabalgan signifies to people because they're trying to sell to a you know a, a youth-oriented market. So our thing is that I suppose we don't have to do those things, and we can do you know design-wise a little different. Well, different in that we're trying to appeal to over twenty-ones and adults, and we're trying to say, look, here's a very broad cross-section of 
you know, acts. Um, interestingly, there's probably five that you, we could say are foreign, but three of those five are Irish guys, or two of them are uh, living out foreign, you know. Actually, three of them. But So the point is, Young Fathers, Wetherall and Fuji and Miyake technically are the only foreign acts. And other than that, all the rest are, to us, the best of a broad spectrum of Irish. You know, you'll always have a few things that you can't fit in. But, um, you know, relative to... You know, six years young rung in the pavilion relative to the last two and a half years doing live at St. Luke's relative to what myself and Ed are into musically there. There it's on a sheet, you know, for this year. I never thought about it like that. You kind of see it as a culmination sort of thing of a lot of different things that you've been doing. Like even I mean, fish go deep like in Henry's back in 1988 or yeah. 1990. Well, they were sweat then. They were and Greg, Andrew Weatherall. Greg, Greg D. Yeah, but see, Weatherall, I mean, it's funny, I asked, actually, Ashling and Keelan, who are working with us on this, I asked them, Andrew Weatherall, what do you know? And Keelan looks at me, go, he played in the Hacienda? And I was like, no, Ashling. And she was like... You're shaving them now. <laughs> he, she was like, no, but but the, the point is, you know, us as promoters, this is the interesting thing. I'm 47, so thus, I have to communicate to your age group who these people are, if you don't know. So Weatherall, I would argue, to me, is the best DJ I've seen. And I think the fact that he basically produced Screamadelica, which, if you think at the time, right, people think of dance music and Greg and Shane. Like, Greg and Shane weren't playing house music when they started, okay, because there was no such thing as house music, okay? It hadn't really started. What it was was you were finding things with a beat, okay? So they were playing, Shane would always be, like, if you want to hear an amazing hip-hop sh- set, have a, go listen to Shane Johnson playing hip-hop sometime. But the point being was that he'd start, that was his interest, and Greg was more into, I suppose, faster stuff, and the combination of both of them developed into that more records came out. So, for example, they would have been playing a few house records, but, like, there wasn't that huge amount of them coming out. I mean, as I say... By the mid-90s, you had thousands coming out per week. But at the start, Greg and Shane had like different little record shops like Fish Records, Deep South Records, you know, places they'd sell records. But it was a way of them importing records, and obviously they took the best of them. And, uh, uh, you know, but that's the way it was, you know. Do you think that they're underappreciated, like, in Ireland and maybe further afield, or do you think that they're, like, just about right where they are? No, I, 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 I don't know about underappreciative. I think, you know, in the sense in Cork, I think people completely are the They people. know they're legends. Like. Well, yeah, but that, that word is used very lightly now. I don't like it as a word anymore, you know, as in I'm kind of getting, I just see it used day in, day out. Everybody's a legend. It's like, nah, you're not a legend. You know, you need to be old to be a legend. Personally, that's what I think. You know, I think someone like Jackie DeBell in Cork is a bit of a legend, Irish Jack, if you know anything oh, about yeah. him. But, you know, he's a legend because the man's been around for so long and has done certain things, you know. There's there's always people that would be interesting and legendary. But, like, so going back to Greg and Shane, I think absolutely, I think they, I think they're regarded for what they've done but i don't think in a cultural sense by the city or you know i'm not saying they they should be get a kind of keys to the city or anything like that but i think they've done a lot and i think the fact that it wouldn't be good enough for me if the two of them were just djs the fact that they've been producing music for 20 years and ironically they were producing it probably for 30 years but they had one record that came out probably in the early 90s 
with Mark Kavanagh on Red um, Red Records or Red, I don't know what it was called. I think it was called Red. And they had one release, I think it was called Silver. And when you listen back, you go, it's grand, but it's not great. And they went underground for about four years after that, just didn't do anything. They just, and I used to always think, you know, kind of lazy feckers, like, what? Why weren't they bringing something out? But to be fair, they were finding their sound. And when they did, when they were ready, they had, they sounded as good as anyone else. I mean, you look back at when they brought out their 20-year or whatever collection, you go, all those tunes stand up years later. And, you know, because per se, they were never influenced by anyone. I mean, Henry's, the other thing was that a lot of DJ culture or entertainment culture is all about, we've got DJ so-and-so and he's amazing and DJ so-and-so. And then, then we've got some teeny little local guy down in the corner who it just, he'll do the first hour, you know what I mean? And the point was back then, Greg and Shane might bring a guest every six or eight weeks. It was a treat to have a guest. It was a treat to the crowd. But they were on on a Thursday originally, and within six months or a year, they were on Saturdays, and they were getting 800 people every week. And, like, it was, you know, it was a an really interesting cultural time in Cork. You know, I remember being in UCC, and it was like the wink, almost, that you'd see someone up there, and you'd kind of... There was the nod. Oh, I saw you and Henry's. I saw you and Henry's. And I wasn't up to any development, trust me, as in, you know, I, but but you could see how, I remember one fellow I knew, um, he uh, literally started going into Henry's. And uh, within three weeks, he was wearing adult-sized baby grows, which were all the rage at the early rave thing, you know, because when it started in 88, 89, that whole thing of summer love and all that, it was really true. I mean, people were there to embrace, and there was it was really interesting culturally in that you had rich people, poor people, you know, uh, you know, townies, country people, gay community. It was a real mixed, and it was really interesting. But, um, you know... After a few years, it kind of changed, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just because we're, we're talking about vent, like kind of venues in Cork, I suppose. How do you feel like ab- about where Cork is at the moment? Like you run St. Luke, co-run St. Luke's. It's kind of like a venture uh, with well, the Good city, Room city, and the City Council. City Council, yeah, it's their and building and they let us use it. And then Sample Studios use downstairs in the crypt for exhibitions and stuff. So it is... I think St. Luke's is great for acoustic, etc., etc., type of music. I mean, its capacity is 400, and it's great. And, you know, we do 30, 40 shows a year there if we can get the right type of acts that we think suit the venue. But, like, we're not trying to bang a square peg into a round hole. Like, we, you know, we won't be putting the Ramones on there. Yeah. You mainly, know the limitations mainly, of the space. Well, mainly as well. because there's only one of them left. And secondly, because uh, they'd be, yeah, it's just, like, in fairness, altered hours we we thought okay this could be interesting and that was one of the most amazing gigs but when when everyone stands up and you realize oh my god if the pews weren't there it would hold a thousand people but the thing is with that even though occasionally it's good having 400 stand up it's kind of really i think a thousand people in st luke's would be too heavy a footprint and you know i don't think it's the right thing i think 400 as a sit down you can't control people either when they're like a big heaving mass like that. Yeah, and absolutely. And 400's fine, you know what I mean? It's easy to kind of manage. But um, but do you cast your eye like over the city? Like I know Greg and Shane were interviewed, I think it was in The Echo, and they were saying that there's just not a good nightclub, you know, not a great sounding club in Ireland. And Elle from Gash Collective says the same. Like she says that there hasn't been 
a gash collective night in Cork since 2016 because there just isn't the right either kind of accepting space or like good sounding place. And it kind of like everyone is complaining about that. And yet, like nothing seems to be coming to the fore. Um, I would agree. I would agree with both Greg and Shane and uh, Elle. I think it's so true. I mean, unfortunately, it's one of those tough ones and it's kind of ebbs and flows. You know what I mean? When we started more disco in the mid 90s, I was like to, to Dennis, OK, there were 17 nightclubs in the city at the time. And I was saying to Dennis, let's find the shittest one that no one wants <laughs> to go to. Right. And there was nothing on Greg and Shane were on on Thursday and on a Saturday. There was nothing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays in Cork. The other thing I said to him was, let's monopolize those three nights. So rather than a few people out on a Monday, a few people out on a Tuesday, a few people out on a Wednesday, if we could convince people that might go out on a Monday and a Wednesday to go on Tuesday, as well as the Tuesday people, and as well, we, like more disco, was phenomenally successful. And I mean, you know, we, as I say, we had amazing guests over the years. It was a really interesting club for four years. And, you know, but you can make a space as well. So, for example, I do think we're lacking in spaces. I think there's, you know, there's certain venues that are fine, but the PA is terrible. There's certain venues that, you know, their PA is good, but the space isn't right for live music um, or, you know, even DJing. But, yeah, I think it's a it's a, a beige period, I would call. I mean, in, I would go as far as to say in 30 years here, it's the worst I've seen it, you know? Really? Yes. I wonder, like, I wonder how you can change it. Is it, like, just, like, Reardon's and that area is almost like a monopoly. Now, you know, there's, like, five, four or five different spaces that can be used, and it's just, like, the Savoy isn't really used anymore. The pavilion, like, even though Raman says that they might be doing something upstairs there, that doesn't look like it's going to be anything anytime soon. And once you take those two big spaces out of it, like, what's what's left, really, apart from... That Reardon's thing, which just doesn't get the crowd, the well, I mean, crowd or the straight space up, you have to want. find other spaces, and that's the game, and that's always been the game. And you know, it's kind of like, ironically, people will go to something that's different. For example, you know, I lived up in McCurtain Street in the early nineties, and really at night time it was a bit dodge because, like, again, you know, you had interestingly the Ashley Hotel, City Limits, you had Grab a Granny, as it was known as the disco, and it was a rough street. And you look at 20 years later now, and even with cask, even pushing it up a little more, it's really now seen as a culinary slash, you know, three to four star street, as opposed to, I remember it being one and two star in perception. So that's it. That's a very recent thing. Like I used to walk down there every uh, year to college when I was living in first year in 2006. And like my abiding memory is this guy collapsed on the ground with a trail of blood following him. You know, it was like a really dodgy street even back then. And yeah, now it's like a complete transformation. But that tells you, I mean, that that happens. I mean, for example, Kinsale in the mid 70s, which probably seems unbelievable considering it's the Riviera, as I call it now. But I mean, it was a tired little rundown with loads of derelict buildings, a little fishing village kind of thing. It wasn't what it is now. So that, I mean, interestingly, when we met today, I was going to say that we started talking about, you know, developments in Cork. And I suppose, you know, the one thing is with and sometimes, and I'm not saying, you know, we're all guilty of it, but you sometimes, it's not trying to, it, there is no way that I'm trying to say Henry's and, you know, 25, 30 years ago was better. 
you know, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it was different and there was more of a community spirit and people had very little. But sometimes with having nothing, you can have the best parties. So I kind of, in a weird, warped kind of uh, reverse logic kind of sense, think even though it's beige, only good things will come from this. So, for example, I look at, you know, um, I see there Ghost King is dead. I look at your man and I go, he's 18, it's very interesting. Yankee's new single is really good. Elaine Malone is really good. Damsel has an EP that he was meant to put out a year ago and he never did, which is excellent. You know, there is all this talent there. You know, I look at, you know, going back to Trabalgan, I see, you know, we're doing um, this thing we're calling the Gay Future, which is the Sunday night in the arcade, which would be great fun. But it's Eddie K, Shantastic, and um, what you call it, uh, Candy Warhol and Maki. Yeah, so like... What what we need to do is, you know, as promoters, on one hand, what you need to do is actually entertain the troops, make it happen. You know, it's it's too easy to go around the place and kind of complain, oh, it's all shit. It's like, yeah, it is, but like that's too it it, it it's shit because sometimes it's too nice. I mean, I always knew the end product of the gentrification of certain areas is that you take the grit out of it. So you can't have it every which way. You look at Dublin and you go, they're all playing in restaurants now. You know what I mean? That's where Dublin's ended up and you've the few clubs. But to the point of that, you know, for example, I remember when I came to Cork down at the bottom of Shandon, there was a bar called The Left Bank and it was this little basement bar. And it was like, you know, it'll never open again because like if there was a fire, you'd be dead. But... All these places that, you know, like the Liberty, you would not believe how shit inside the Liberty. I mean, it was concrete on the floor. You sat in kegs. They served two litres over the counter. And like literally, it was just like, it was like a half built house. But it was a brilliant bar. Where know? was the Liberty again? It the was Liberty by is where the it's, Raven, was it? It's just down the road. It's They rebuilt there. But like, I mean, the bar that's there and what was there in the past are a million miles apart. <laughs> Uh, let's try and stay with it takes a village. Yes. Um, like where, like so, the idea kind of came back to you. Was it last year or something? You were like, okay, let's finally do this. Or had you been asking like for the past fifteen years? Like, no, come on, let no, me put no, something no, on no. there. And you no, were just, fifteen years ago, basically, we, um, uh, you know, I kind of wanted to do it, but I knew it was, you know, it's big money. It's a big risk. I mean, you're, if you're gonna do something like this you know it's high risk high gain well actually no not high gain it's high risk <laughs> you know uh the high gain bit maybe in a few years well not high gain i don't think it would ever be i don't think being honest with you the way running gigs guns it's not high gain it's different in dj world to band world but um no i would have thought about it back then and i approached Trabalgan. It wasn't just a kind of pipe dream i approached him met the boss man chatted away it was great and then um you know, um, let's just say they ran an event maybe 12, 13 years ago down there. Um, and, you know, I remember seeing it at the time and I said, you know what, that's not going to that's not gonna do well for you. And there was loads of trouble at it. And that scared them off. So maybe a year and a half, two years ago when we started approaching them, we kind of nicely got a kind of a PFO. And I just kept going back to them going, how would you turn us down? You know, What's PFO? Uh, please f off oh as in a pfo in that a price that there's no way in the wide earthly world it could be that price you know what i mean and oh okay right the rental price which is like it's so ridiculous that you're not gonna 
go there. And that was just them nicely as a protection device kind of going, are these guys serious or not? So, you know, we are serious and we've always been serious, myself and Ed. Not in that regard, but like if we say we're going to do something, we do it, you know. And, um, you know, that's like we approached City Council over three years ago about an empty building on the north side that was sitting idle. And, you know, they said, okay, no problem, you can use it. And, you know, two and a half years later, you look at Live at St. Luke's and I think, you know, over the 80 gigs we've done, I think we've established ourselves. So going back to It Takes a Village, I just think it's one of those things that, like with anything, with any new idea, it's always difficult to communicate the bigger picture, which is that, you're paying for a house, so you will drive in a car, down with your buddies, or you can get a spin, or however you bus down to Whitegate and walk the last kilometre, or however you want to do it, and you arrive and you'll be checked in, and you're, you're pointed out where your house is, and your house is probably a minute from where you checked in, and then you basically, um, you can offload, you know, you can have gone to... Uh, you know, any of the four major supermarkets in Middleton got your beer and your whatever uh, food, you know, because it's self-catering. So you can say to yourself, I'm going to go down there and spend zero if you <coughs> wanted on, you know, other than stuff you bring in yourself, not spend money in the central area. So ironically, there's a little perception of that it's expensive. But when you maybe, I suppose what I'm trying to do is articulate that, um when you consider it's three nights accommodation in a house or else the camper van if if you're bringing your own one that it it is pretty reasonable compared to like if you were to go to dublin to a gig for a night and as i say you're seeing we think 70 exceptionally good acts you know across a, a weekend three nights um in east cork it's i think that is to be commended like the amount of irish acts uh that are there and like in big letters as well just because so many festivals you see like i think forbidden fruit is quite bad at this they kind of just shunt on the irish acts you know at the end and very you know right at the bottom just kind of filling out your day and it's like every, everyone kind of sees the irish acts almost coincidentally rather than well, making a I'll moment you, of like like altered errors are going to be amazing at it takes a village it's going to be like the next step of course on the wrong but them. but you know uh, you as a band you mentioned them and I, luckily i've you know kind of been there seen them since they started probably 10 years ago well i wouldn't have seen them in the quad which was another great bar in Cork that people put on great gigs for a few years in. But um, I saw the Altered Airs, I remember hearing them at the start, and I was like, these guys are really good. And they've always maintained something that no one else, well, or people find it difficult to do. They are not a chameleon. They don't turn into whatever's going on societally, you know, musically at that time. They've always been two steps ahead of what is the in sound. They're kind of like uh, DJ Harvey that you mentioned earlier. They kind of go away for like eight months and then it's like, wh what are they up to? Like, I mean, was what, what was you know? the St. Luke's gig last year? Was that their that only Cork the gig of Festival, the year? October. Was that yeah, their but, only Cork gig of the year? Yeah, but that's the proper way to manage it. For example, you look like, uh, you know, on that note, of course, Altered Errors on it half 11 or 12 late on the Friday night. I mean, it, it'll go from Lancome into the Jimmy Cake, which will be interesting because oh. you've won, you've got um, Cormac Dermody, or, or O'Dermada, as he calls himself, and then his three brothers are in the Jimmy Cake, and then we go into Talos, we go into Altered Errors, uh, Andy Weatherall, and then Shit Robot, and that's in the main room. So the point there is, you know, being honest with Altered Hours, I mean, Altered Hours got nearly 400 people in St. Luke's. Well, they had 400 
Um, you look at uh, Talos sold out two shows in St. Luke's at Christmas, 800 people. I mean, they're not there out of, um, you know, uh, favoritism or backpacking. They're out of there as a merit, you know what I mean? I mean, Lancome, you look at as an Irish band that, you know, are really opening up doors for, you know, what is folk music. I mean, weirdly, even though they're a folk band, I don't see them as a folk band. I see them as like an alternative band. They just happen to play folk music because, you know, there's a track on the first album, one of the last tracks, uh, Lullaby. And you listen to that or even on the new album, there's one about Turkish, whatever. And there's places in that and you're going, they could go anywhere as a band. And I'm making the distinction between being in a band because it's cool and we can wear skinny jeans and get girls to once you go on to the next level, which is, you know, whether it's boys or girls in that regard, you know, whoever the artist may be, but that ultimately you're doing it because you want to or have to make music for yourself. So we think we really have a huge uh, smorgasbord of acts that pretty much do their own thing, you know, and that's why they, I suppose, have their all their own. I'm looking at the list in front of me here with the poster and I'm going, really, I could stand behind all the acts and say they're all doing something a little different. Uh, has it been more work than you envisaged? Envisioned? Envisioned? Um, no, it's not. No, not that it's been more work. I mean, you know, we've five weeks to go. Maybe when this comes out, it might be four weeks, but uh, what you call it? No, we've a lot to do. We have to, we have to convince people. You know, we've had decent sales so far, but we have to get it over the line to the point of, you know, uh, breaking even or whatever, so that, you know, that you can do it next year and the year after. Because ultimately, you know, equally, not that we've ranted on about it, we don't have sponsorship. We didn't go looking for sponsorship. Maybe at this point, I'm going. Maybe we should have. <laughs> but uh, it's not but too late. You yeah. Can still well, do it. no. Do you know what? It's an ethos that if we could get as close as we could to break even, we'd be okay with that. But ultimately, we're saying it's an ethos thing. We don't believe that you need, you know, for this festival anyway. We don't believe that you need sponsors' names blaringly all over it. You know, we think it's actually about. You know, I mean, going back to the name, it takes a village. I mean, the whole idea is. You know, as I mentioned earlier, it's like, can you put a thousand people in what is effectively a village and they live there together? So they get up and they have a shower and they can go for a walk and walk around the site or they can decide to drive into Middleton and go to the farmer's market on the Saturday. Or they can decide to go and see Kevin Barry and Roger Doyle or, you know, they can decide to go on a nature walk or a history walk. And that's only or go to the pool party on the Saturday or the Sunday. There'll be five-a-side stuff, go-karting. So there's all those kind of kiddie stuffs you, you or family fun stuff you associate with Trebalgan. And then on top of that, we've got, like, you know, we believe world-class acts. You know, I do think it's funny. A fellow I know that was in a very successful band put up, you know, the other day on Facebook, uh, kind of like, is hip-hop dead or whatever? And I didn't bother because I hate getting into those Facebook conversations, but I felt like just going young fathers and leaving it at that. In other words, they to me, and they're the headline of our festival, but we're delighted about that, but ultimately they answered that question that was asked years ago. It was like, where does hip-hop go after bling and this and that and the other? And I really think they're pushing the boundaries of what is hip-hop, R&B, soul, 
you know, fuckbeat, as we used to call. I'd call it kind of fuckbeat, really. Yeah. Uh, is, is there one thing that you are really looking forward to at the lineup? Like, you're probably going to be running around like a madman all weekend. Is there one thing that you've kind of set aside that you are, like, desperate to see? No, there's nothing. I mean, Kevin Barry and Roger Doyle. I mean, Roger Doyle, I'm... I'm I couldn't believe I could get him because, like, I'm going, this is the four, you know, the guy to me who was one of the main, well, he was the main, the guy that started Irish electronic music, you know, if you go back. And, you know, there'd be people like him and Stano, but, like, to have him, and it's funny, Kevin Barry used to live in Cork, so I'd know him, and I remember, uh, what you call it, there was, um, he had used the Kevin Barry line on a song, something like the smog of the night or the smog of the, something like this. And I was like, I got on to Kevin. I said, you know, Roger? Oh, I know him well. He's a good buddy. And I said, would you do something together? So to me, Kevin Doyle and Roger Barry, sorry, Kevin Doyle, it's the soccer player. They Kevin, just mix so well. Yeah, Kevin Barry and Roger Doyle. Roger Barry. Who's Roger Barry? Well, anyway, but uh, no, yeah, but Kevin Doyle, yeah, good Cork City player, but so that'll be interesting. So having a grand piano in the main room, and then following on from that, it goes into I think it's Landless, and then into Lillivargan, Slow Moving Clouds. Is it, is it fun programming it? Like getting the flow right? Like that's probably something that you learned early on. Like you know that you have to have the right DJs following each other. Yeah, I suppose blah, blah. genuinely, you know, without getting all curatorial because we don't curate, we book bands. <laughs> you keep saying that, but you no, definitely but I, I are don't, a curator. I too. don't. <laughs> no, but I'm not. Own. I really. I've major issue. For example, I think when ATP started. And they gave Autech or Nick Cave or Portishead and they said, you curate it. I think in that regard, it's a nice idea. But as I say, you get young fellas throwing three of their band friends' bands in their garage and their curators. And I just think it's overused. I think it's bastardized. And I don't think we need to use it anymore. But so you keep saying it so often that you're not a curator that it's made you into a curator. No, but I'm not. I'm, no. I'm going to put that in the description of the podcast. I, I talk with curator <laughs> of no, It Takes no, a Village, no, Joe but, Kelly. But, but, I know, but I'd still argue back and say I'm not, nor is Ed. We're not in that we pick bands. And if you go, we book bands, we put them on, you know, you know, every few weeks or whatever. <laughs> and you stand behind if you like that band. And ultimately, we, we go with It Takes a Village. We go, here Oz is, in our opinion, some of the best Irish stuff. And I mean, there was tons and tons of bands got onto us, you know, once we launched. And really? Oh, just yeah. trying to pitch themselves. Oh, yeah. Jesus, loads. Even today, like, it's still, it's kind of, well, we're kind of a bit past that point. Yeah. But, yeah, and I mean, no, there's been all the way along people have been asking, you know, so, you know, and you, you know, some of them you would put on and you'd be like, next year, maybe, you know what I mean? So we have to get the next year. So thus we have to uh, get as many people to go this year as possible to make next year a possibility. Fingers crossed. I guess we'll leave it there. We could talk for hours more, I think. Well, that would be a lovely thing, and we might do after we put these microphones down, <laughs> even though I have to be down in St. Luke's at one o'clock. Yeah. But what I would say is, yeah, so anyone listening to this, look, you know, as I say, you might think it's expensive, but it's actually not when you consider you can bring cans, you can bring your own food. You don't have to spend money other than, you know, that. You might buy yourself a few points in the central area, as in you can't bring your cans into the central area. But, you know, you can have a very inexpensive and good weekend with some, as I say, 70-plus amazing Irish acts, Irish and international acts, for that matter. I guess the thing is, if it is successful, like, it can't get any bigger. 
it doesn't grow, does it? Because, like, you're well, you're confined to Trevulgan. No, it's, well, uh, it can, it can. I mean, ironically, it can. But I mean, let's not count any chickens, you know. But um, no, it can. I mean, it's funny. Keelan and Ashing came down last week, and uh, straight away, Ashing was like, "Oh my God, you could put a stage here." So right at the coast. There's a fence, and you're in a valley. I mean, it's a natural valley. So if it was a few years down the line, and we'd built up a very good relationship with Trebogan, and you found a way of managing the day tickets, because we were asked that as well, which is there are day tickets for the Sunday, but not Friday, Saturday. And the reason is we're going to you know, have to deal with X amount of people. It's our first time you doing down there. We've X amount of people coming in, and you know, as residents, we have to take care of them etc etc but there are Sunday day tickets so you know maybe in a few years time if it were all works out you could do up to a few thousand people with an outdoor stage but you know let's get over this hurdle first and we'll have to you know we'll be at this size for a few years yeah fingers crossed cool thanks Joe